Well, if you are visiting this morning, and thanks so much for coming, let me add my voice to Brendan's. We're always honored to have visitors here, and Easter Sunday seems like a good reason for people to come out. So thanks for being a part of us this morning. I've got a title for today's message. I've called it The Reasonable Resurrection. And this morning is going to be a little bit different to what it's usually like at Sovereign Grace. Generally speaking, at Sovereign Grace, you spend about three quarters of an hour going over one particular passage. And we look at 10 verses or 15 verses or whatever it be, and we spend time really going through them and expositing them and, and helping us see what God means through that, who God is through that, how it applies to us. But today is going to be slightly different in that I want us to take an overview of what the Bible says about one particular topic. And that one particular topic is the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it's such an important doctrine to Christianity and to our faith. The belief that Christians believe that Jesus not only died on the Friday, but then on the Sunday, he rose from death. He rose again. And so I'm going to pray and then we'll dive into this together and see where we get to. All right, let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you for coming and dying in our place. Lord Paul said that he considered to teach nothing apart from Christ and him crucified in his church. But that did not mean that he didn't preach the resurrection. It was an assumed gospel part. And so, Lord, today, Lord, we, we don't want to assume. Today, we want to bring it to the fore. And, Lord, would you speak powerfully then into our lives? Would you change lives? Lord, for those of you that don't know you as Lord and Savior, would you, would you quicken faith in their hearts? And would you open our eyes to behold the glories of the resurrected Christ and all that that means? Oh Lord, for us as Christians, would you strengthen our faith and cultivate fresh faith as we look at facts and as we look at how reasonable the resurrection really is? Would that have a dramatic effect on all of our lives? In Jesus' holy name, amen. For the last few months, actually about nine months in Sovereign Grace, we've been looking at the Gospel of John. We've been spending time in just what is a profound Gospel, looking at Jesus, all that He is, all that He came to do. And over the last few weeks, we've been in John chapter 14, a chapter that helps us see not only the joys of salvation and Christianity, but, but all that comes with that. And so we've seen together how through Jesus we can be forgiven of our sin, how our sin can be removed as far as the East is from the West, how Jesus' death actually made it possible for our slate to be completely wiped clean. We've seen how through Christianity and through faith in Jesus, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, and a helper throughout our Christian walk that helps us understand that God is truly our Father and that God truly is with us. We've seen also over the last few weeks how heaven is our home and how Jesus says that I've got to go to the disciples. I've got to go to prepare a place for you. Because in my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going to make one for you. And just last week, we gave attention to the doctrine of adoption. The truth that God, in His grace, sent forth His Son in the fullness of time. And He sent forth His Son so that anybody who had put their faith in His Son's death could be adopted into His family. People like us, once orphans now children of God. Adoption 
really is the heart of the gospel. Adoption, in so many ways, really is the heart of the good news. The truth that we were once lost but are now found. The truth that we were once orphans but now that we're children of God. That is the heart, in so many ways, of the good news. But here's the thing I want us to realize this morning. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, if it was proven that in some way Jesus did in fact not rise bodily and physically and actually from the dead, then the whole of our faith is a waste of time. If it could be proven that Jesus is still dead, then we are all utterly wasting our time and wasting our lives as Christians. And those are not my words, they're the words of the Apostle Paul himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is trying to speak to the Corinthian church about a new belief that they have, that people don't actually get resurrected from the dead, that that time will never come. And he begins to preach to them and help them see, you know what, you're believing something that is heresy. We do indeed rise from the dead and we go to be with Jesus on that last day. And one of the examples he uses of that is Jesus himself. But as he puts the argument together for this church that he's preaching to, he he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. He says, But if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If you're right, Corinthians, that Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then everything I've been preaching to you thus far is a waste of time. There is no salvation, there is no forgiveness, no adoption, no heaven is our home, because everything he said is a lie because he's still dead. And so if he's still dead, if there is no resurrection, then the whole of our faith begins to crumble. And he accordingly then says in verse 19, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we, meaning Christians, are of all people most to be pitied. I think he's right. The resurrection is not true. We of all people are to be pitied because we're believing in one that never rose again. We're believing in one that said that he would rise again to show once and for all that he really is God. But he didn't. He's a liar. And so we would all be utterly wasting our time. And so we are amongst all people then most to be pitied if the resurrection didn't happen. And so today then, with that in mind and that as a backdrop, I want to use this day, Resurrection Sunday, to take some time out to look at the evidence, the profound and glorious evidence that Jesus Christ did indeed rise from the dead. I want us to look at it together and examine it together and see for ourselves, this is true. And if this is true, this has profound consequences for each and every one of us in the room. You see, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I know there are a number with us today. Now, first of all, thanks so much for coming. We so appreciate that you would come because I don't know whether I would if it was the other way around. I'd probably think of numerous things to do better, better with my day. So the fact that you're honoring us with your presence, we, we appreciate that. And to be honest, if you don't know Jesus Christ as a Lord and Savior, I completely get where you're coming from when it comes to the resurrection. Because the idea of some dude coming back to life does seem a little far-fetched. And there is something in us, is there not, in our brains and in our bodies that thinks, are you kidding me? I mean, this just seems completely ridiculous and completely insane in every way. And I get that. But today, then, as we look at this evidence, 
I want to try and convince you that just because the resurrection is supernatural doesn't mean it's not reasonable. Just because the resurrection is without doubt a supernatural moment, it doesn't mean that it's not reasonable. It doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense. And it doesn't mean that there isn't overwhelming evidence to show that that did indeed happen, which does change, I think, everything. And so if you're a non-Christian, I want to take some time to seek to prove to you that he did rise from the dead. And if you are a Christian, which is most of us in the room, I want this message to both cultivate fresh faith in your heart and also strengthen faith in your heart. Because if this is true and we stand on this weekly as believers, then when we hear truth, there should be something residing in our body that goes, yes, this is true. And if this is true, then this is true, and this is true, and this is true. Thank you, Jesus. So I want it to have a cultivating and strengthening effect on your faith today. So six points. Six points, which is, either the, which is in essence, the case for the resurrection. Now, I know you're panicking when I say six. You think, I've got lunch at one. I know, but it'll be okay. They're very short points. They're not going to take lengthy, but you keep tracking with each of the points, and hopefully it will help to build a case then for the resurrection. So number one, first piece of evidence. Number one, the Bible records the resurrection as history. The Bible, this Bible or your Bible in your hand, it records the resurrection in here as historical data, as history. See, ever since the Enlightenment a number of years ago, people have been trying to explain away the resurrection as a piece of literature which is, which is not historical, but instead is figurative. So, i.e., they're trying to convince us that it's maybe a dream or a picture or a poem or a myth or a legend. So nobody denies that it's actually in the Bible, but they sort of say, yeah, but it's probably like you know, one of these mythical things where, you know, because Jesus says he's the door and he's not really a door, is he? He's probably just like that. It's, it's like a figurative moment in the Bible. So it didn't actually historically happen. It's just a figurative moment. But the reality is in all of the four Gospels, in each and every one of the Gospels, completed only 30 to 60 years after the events they describe, the resurrection is recorded as history. It's written to us as historical data, not myth or legend or dream, but historical data. And that's why the guys writing him are the guys writing to them. They're guys that were actually there or guys that are interviewing people that were there. So take Luke, for example. Luke is a man that, that takes a lot of time to make sure accuracy and precision is correct. Luke is a doctor. Now, there's one thing I know about doctors. Why does it tell us in the Bible that he's a doctor? I'll tell you what it tells us he's a doctor. Because doctors are men and women of precision, are they not? Who amongst us wants to go for a doctor that is sort of, she'll be all right, mate? No one wants to go to one of those doctors. We want precision, do we not? I don't want to go in for an operation and hear my name as I get on the operating table and the doctor comes in and says, oh, it's, it's about there. Just, you know, I don't want about there. I want to know it's exactly there. I want to know he's made notes. I want to know that he's made details. I want to know that he's checked it and double-checked it and checked it again. I remember with um, Yui, Dr. Chua, in our congregation, I remember traveling with him a while ago when we were on the way to the airport, and he took a call, and I thought, this would be interesting. Would you like me to take it, Dr. Chua? And I, apparently not. So, but the call comes through, and it was this guy, this, this top surgeon, that's filling Dr. Chua in on the fact that the arm is something like 37 or 38 degrees out. And I'm thinking... Does it matter? I mean, ish. I mean, this will do. But it, but it was very important that it was either 37 or 38. So you're trying to pin him down. What is it? That's because doctors 
are people of precision. That's why we're told that Dr. Luke writes this. Because he wants you to know, I'm a doctor. And so I've interviewed hundreds of people on these things. He's writing for the most excellent Theophilus. This man who is incredibly wealthy, who seems to become a Christian, but he wants Luke, young Luke, to go and research everything that he's been told and to come back and report to him. And is this all true? Make it very accurate, Luke, because I ain't given my life away to something that's false. So make sure it's all true. So Luke goes off for years and interviews everybody involved, and then he writes the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, and John are the same. They're not doctors, but they're men of precision. They're men that were actually there. And so they're writing about things that actually happened on their watch with their eyes. And so we may not believe it, but the idea that this can't be taken seriously because it's myth or dream or something like that is completely nonsensical when it comes to literature. This piece of literature is written as historical data. So number one, the Bible records the resurrection as history. But that's not all. Number two, told you they'd be quick. The Bible says that the resurrection would happen. The Bible claims many hundreds of years before the resurrection that this indeed would take place. See, throughout the Old Testament and in the very early part of the New Testament, there are over 300 prophecies spoken by 29 different voices that all relate into Jesus Christ. A number of them talk about his birth, where he's actually going to be born. Now, that's Tricky to fudge, okay? You know where somebody's been born. It's prophesied hundreds of years before. It's foretold in the future. And then lo and behold, Jesus happens to be born there. A number of them talk about his life and then his death. A whole whack of prophecies, 29 prophecies, are fulfilled on the moment of his death, the way it happened. The way the guards are actually splitting up the garments. That was prophesied in the Psalms hundreds of years before that that's the way they would do it. They'd cast lots and they would get his clothes. There were numerous things, 29 things, all talking about his death. But also in the Old Testament, there are numerous prophecies relating into his resurrection. The fact that this man, who claims to be God, who was indeed God, will die for the sins of the world and then will rise again. So take, for example, Isaiah 53. Let me give you a couple of examples. Isaiah 53. Isaiah is a book of prophecy and predictions, and it tells us about future events. It focuses mainly on the coming of Jesus Christ. And accordingly then, Isaiah 53 is an incredible piece of literature because when you read it, you have to pinch yourself to remind yourself that it was indeed written 700 years before Jesus came because it describes with such detail Jesus that we then read in the Gospels, oh, he's just like that. That's exactly who he is. So in Isaiah 53, we have this wonderful piece of literature 700 years before Jesus was born, all pointing to Jesus. And then in verse 10 of Isaiah 53, we read as follows. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. It's subtle, but did you see it? When his soul makes an offering for sin, what's that moment? It's the moment when his eyes close in death. The ultimate consequence for our sin is death. So when God in his grace, in his soul, makes an offering for sin, Isaiah says, that moment, 
he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. That's awfully tricky if you're dead. Therein lies the point. 700 years before Jesus ever arrives on the scene, one is prophesied who will give themselves as a ransom for many and through that giving, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. It's pointing us to the resurrection. But that's only 700 years before. We can do better than that. A thousand years before is Psalm 16. A thousand years before Jesus is even born, we have a psalm written by King David, and it is by and large a description of the Christian life when times are hard, when times are tough, when as Christians we go through difficult things. And so in verse 1 of Psalm 16, we read, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. He's crying out to God and saying, Lord, please, please help me because I'm struggling. I'm going through challenge. But Lord, in you I take refuge. And then in verse 10, incredibly, he starts prophesying of one to come. He says this. He says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see decay. Well, what does that mean? What do you mean? I mean, I could take you to King David's burial chamber, and his bones are still there. His body is definitely decayed. Believe me, there is nothing left of it. He is definitely gone. His body is definitely seen decay. But he says here, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see decay. But David, you did decay. Quite. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about one to come. One whose body will not see decay. Why will it not see decay? Because after death, three days later, he will rise again, and three days would not be enough to see decay. So this body rises again, and this holy one that David is singing about a thousand years before Jesus even arrives, he's talking about Jesus and how Jesus will indeed rise again. We know that because Peter then uses that very saying in Acts chapter 2, and Paul uses it in Acts chapter 13, both saying, you know what King David was saying a thousand years ago? That was always meant to point to Jesus. So don't just take my word for it. Go with Peter and Paul as well. Okay, they're prophesying that this is what they meant years ago. It's incredible. So a thousand years before Jesus arrives, and then 700 years before Jesus arrives, these prophecies pointing to the fact that Jesus will indeed rise again. But then in the New Testament, Jesus adds his voice to the choir, predicting not only his death, but also his resurrection, doesn't he? If you read the Gospels, should it have been a surprise to the disciples that Jesus rose again? No, because he's telling them all the time. He's telling them all the time, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again. And then they get to the night before, and they what do you mean you're going to die? You know, I've been telling you for weeks. You know, he's telling them all the time. So in all four Gospels, you see him explaining to them that I am going to die and then I will rise again. For although they will strike down the temple, in three days later I will raise it up. Particularly in the Gospel of Mark, we see this incredible momentum that is coming about as Jesus is explaining why he's come to them. So in Mark chapter 8, he says, The Son of Man, which is always referring to himself, the Son of Man must be killed and after three days will rise again. That is pretty darn obvious what he's saying, don't you think? I mean, this is pretty basic stuff. Fortunately, the disciples are just like us. They're a bit slow of hearing. So in Mark chapter 9, a chapter later, he says it again. The Son of Man will be killed, and after three days will rise. 
Well, the disciples are particularly slow because they're men. So in Mark chapter 10, he goes again. The Son of Man will be mocked and spat on and flogged and killed. They panic at this point as he says these things. So he continues. But three days later, he will rise again. Before Jesus ever died, for a thousand years there had been prophecies about that moment. A thousand years prophesying about his birth and his death, but also his resurrection. Jesus then rocks up on the scene. He says, listen, I've been born just as the prophecy in Micah said. I'm now going to die just as all the prophecies say. And three days later, I'll rise again. What on earth the disciples were worried about only knows. The only consolation in that is I think if I'd been there, I would have been worrying too. They just didn't understand. They hadn't grasped it. But then when he did rise again, the disciples were the first to say, we knew it. We knew this would happen. You're like, well, you didn't know it a day ago. You know, but, th- but that was the premise. It was always prophesied that that was going to happen. And so the very fact of that, I think, is also evidence for us. This wasn't a surprise. The Bible says that the resurrection would happen, and lo and behold, it did. Evidence point three, and I think this is where it begins to become quite compelling. Number three, the sheer number of witnesses. See, if the witnesses claim to the resurrection of Jesus Christ had come from three stoners, it wouldn't be so impressive, would it? You know, if all we had in Scripture was, well, you know what, we believe it, because three guys that were, well, clearly they'd been smoking a few things, but they came out and they said, yeah, we saw him. And one guy said, I think I saw him, but the other two said they really saw him. And so, God, oh, God, and come goes the Christian faith. It, it was, that wouldn't be very impressive. And when you read this type of thing, if you read it like in the newspaper you would assume they'd been smoking something strange, an unidentified flying object. You would assume that something strange is going on in their minds. And so you could rightly assume, particularly as a non-believer, that that's all that's happening here. These guys are hallucinating, maybe. They're on hallucinogenics. They're, They're doing something that is causing them to see things. But that might work if there was one witness. But there's over 520 It is scientifically impossible for 520 people at the same time to have a hallucination exactly the same. It just doesn't make sense. Think about those numbers for a moment. 500 plus people claim to have seen the risen Christ. That is approximately three times as many people in this room at this moment. Imagine if you really were in a court of law and somebody was trying to argue that, I know he rose again. And they said, well, obviously we don't believe you because that doesn't happen. It's okay. Bring in witness one. And they come in. Bring in witness two. Bring in witness 345. Imagine when you get to 500, you'd think, I'm hearing the same thing a lot of times. You would have to be quite prejudiced in that court of law to then turn around and say, I don't believe you. Why don't you believe them? There's all these people coming time and time again saying, we saw him. We believe in him. He rose again. He knew my name. We recognized him. I saw him. It gets even more incredible when you realize many of those individuals, if not all of those individuals, went on to give their life for Jesus. Claiming what? Claiming that he'd risen again. Why would you do that if he hadn't? The sheer number of witnesses, I think, is so compelling. Josh McDowell, a church historian, says as follows. He says, do you realize that if those 500 people were to testify in a court of law for only six minutes... Each, including cross-examination, you would have an amazing 50 hours 
of first-hand testimony. 50 hours. Although the resurrection is supernatural, that does not make it unreasonable. 50 hours of people coming in, one after another, saying, I saw him, I saw him, I saw him, I know him, I saw him. In 1 Corinthians 15, then Paul outlines those people. Verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Get that? In accordance with the Scriptures. He's pointing back to the Old Testament. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The reason why he's writing that is not only to show them the sheer number of people that are claiming to have seen the risen Christ, The reason why he's writing it is because he wrote this to the Corinthian church only about 30 years after the event took place. Many of these people would still be alive. And so what he's saying is, guys, if you don't believe me that he rose from the dead, go find them. Go find James. Go find the apostles. Go find the 500. It isn't going to take you long. Go and start asking all these people. They're everywhere. And ask them if they're believing something different from me. That is compelling evidence. Not one or two stoners, over 500 people, many of whom they give their lives for Jesus Christ, claiming they saw him rise from the dead, all claiming, yeah, he's risen. We saw him. Number four, the transformation of skeptics. And this for me, as I was studying this this week, is the most compelling piece of evidence of all. Not only transforming people that loved Jesus before he died, but transforming people who, before Jesus died, hated him and didn't believe in any shape or form. You see, when Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago, not everybody believed he said who he was. The New Testament tells us that some people did, many people did, but a lot of people didn't. And yet when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he he meets with many people, he interacts with certain individuals, and as he interacts with them, their lives are utterly transformed, and among them number many skeptics. So let me give you an example of two. Number one, the James, James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, was an ultimate ultimate skeptic because he was Jesus' brother. I mean, imagine that. I've got a brother and a sister. Imagine if my brother one day came home and said, Dave, I know you've called me Andrew all this time, but there's something you should know. Oh, what's that, brother? I'm Jesus. Right, well, the first thing you're getting is a wedgie. You know, there's no way, there's no way, as a brother, you would, you would take that on in any shape or form. And for all of those of you that got brothers at this moment, you're thinking, oh, that's so what I would do as well. And everybody else is laughing along politely. But we all know that must have been what had happened. Nobody believes he's God. They're like, are you, are you get away. You know, there's just no way. And that's James. So in Mark's gospel, in chapter 3, we read that Jesus' family were convinced that he was out of his mind. I can understand that. You must, have, you must be off your head. You think you're God. 
Oh my gosh, I'm the tooth fairy. You know, they must have just thought that this isn't unbelievable what he's saying here. The ironic thing about that in the Gospel of Mark is the Gospel of Mark is written to try and convince us that Jesus really is the Son of God and that he really is God. And then he tells us in chapter 3, but his mum and dad and, you know, the brothers and sisters, they thought he was crazy. For me, moments like that give the Bible integrity. Because why would you say that if you're trying to convince people that everybody thinks he's God? He's just telling you because he's being honest. But yeah, his mum and the brothers, they didn't, they didn't believe, they didn't understand. John then echoes exactly the same thing in John chapter 7. He says that his brothers never believed in him, including James. But then we're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 that when Jesus rose from the death, he sought James out. Just prior to seeking Paul out himself, the risen saviour, James's brother, sought James out. James had an interaction with the risen Christ and James's life in that moment was radically changed. James had grown up a sceptic. Jesus had died. James had watched him as a sceptic. The risen Christ encounters James. James in that moment becomes a Christian. In a few years, he starts to lead the church in Jerusalem. And then after a few more years, he would go on to die for the faith. A skeptic's life had been so transformed that he now gives his life, claiming, I have encountered the risen Christ. And I can't believe it either because he was my brother. But clearly he was the son of God. He he rose again. James then went on to die for the faith. He gave his life for the faith. The officials in Jerusalem wanted to quash Christianity. They wanted to squash it. That's why they killed Jesus in the first place. And so James is starting to preach the gospel in the streets. All these people are starting to become Christians. And so the authorities make James go to the top of the temple, and it would be at least as high as that roof. And they, got him to, they wanted him to preach to all of the crowd that assembled, all of his church, that everything he had said was a lie. That Jesus was not God. That Jesus had not risen from the dead. And so James agrees to go to the top of the temple. So he grows to the top of the temple. And he starts to preach Christ and him crucified. He starts to explain to his church that this is all true. And that I have seen Jesus with my own eyes. Jesus lives. My brother lives. The son of God lives. The authorities are utterly appalled. They run up after him and they push him off. And he lands on the floor and everybody assumes he's dead. But miraculously, he's not. He picks up his head and starts preaching again. And so they get stones and they start to stone him there and then. He still begins to preach, even though stones are hitting his head. And so they take clubs and they club him to death. And Eusebius, the second century historian, says that as they were clubbing him, he's praying for the very men that are clubbing him. Just like he'd seen his brother do at Calvary. He's now praying for those around him. That's so compelling to me. A skeptic now dying for the faith, claiming that he'd seen him. My friends, here's my question. What does it take for a man to go from a skeptic to this? What would it take for a man who just thinks Jesus is just my brother? He's out of his mind. To now be dying for his faith, believing Jesus lives. The New Testament tells us the only thing that would account for that is an encounter with the risen Christ. Because then once you realize 
God can raise us from the dead. You don't fear death anymore. And you preach because it's real. Take also the apostle Paul. His old name was Saul. He was known as Saul of Tarsus. And he was a Jewish academic scholar. He wasn't just a skeptic. He was a vitriolic hater of Christianity. First time we encounter him in the book of Acts, we see that Paul is so passionate about hating Christianity that when Stephen is being stoned to death, also preaching the gospel as the first martyr of the faith, the apostle Paul is just gathering people to him saying, hey, I'll hold your coat. You leave your bags with me, it'll be fine. And he's smiling. He's loving it because he hates Christianity. And so if you want to pick up a stone, I'll hold your stuff. You go for your life. I want you to have the pleasure even more than me. I take pleasure from you taking pleasure. This guy is sick. And he is passionately against the faith of Christianity. He hates Christianity. He hates Christianity so much that after that event, he goes to the powers of being his religion and he says, listen, I want to go to Damascus. Will you send me to Damascus? Because I want to pull people back from Damascus, all these Christians, so that we can do to them exactly what we've just done to Stephen. I will bring them back one by one if need be. I will drag them by their hair if need be. And then we can stone them just like we did him because I hate this. That wouldn't be a short trip. That's the equivalent of going from Sydney to Newcastle on foot to drag people back. That's how much he hates Christianity. And yet on the way to Damascus, after they agreed it, Paul encountered somebody who he was not expecting to encounter. Encountered Jesus. The risen Jesus appeared before him. And in that moment, the Apostle Paul became a Christian. He is the most unlikely Christian you have ever met in your life. But he has an encounter with the risen Christ. He gives his life to Christ. When he returns back, he begins to preach the gospel. He begins actually to preach the gospel to all the known world. He begins to take the gospel forward and starts to plant churches and start churches across the world. He goes on to write a third of the New Testament. At around 66 AD, he would be beheaded for his faith on a road just outside Rome. What does it take for somebody who hates Christianity that much to hold coats while people are stoning Stephen to then start preaching the gospel? and planting churches, and giving his life away for the faith, ultimately to die for the faith. What does it take? Well, the New Testament tells us what it takes. It takes an encounter with the risen Christ Jesus. It's the only thing that makes sense. Blaise Pascal, a wonderful 17th century mathematician, once said, I believe most the witnesses that are willing to get their throats cut. I do too. If somebody was just saying, oh, I didn't believe it, but now I do. Okay. Well, we'll behead you then. Oh, not sure I believe it now. You know, that's what I'd be thinking. (laughs) But these men were being killed for the faith. And they were willing to be killed for the faith. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why would to, to die is gain if it's not true? If he didn't rise from the dead, if I didn't see him, this doesn't make sense. Just because the resurrection is supernatural doesn't mean it's not reasonable. The only thing that makes this possible is that James and Paul did encounter the risen Christ. That's what changed their lives. 
Number five, the transformation of the disciples. After Jesus died, the disciples were in disarray. These were not a group of old guys, mature guys with mature heads that could cope with this situation before them. After Jesus is arrested and tried, these guys are boys. Now, for all those that have been concerned over the years that think, oh, I really want my pastors to be like 50 or 60, the disciples are about 18, 19, and 20. That's it. And they began to preach the gospel and turn the world upside down. They were young guys. So when Jesus got arrested and tried, they are scared out their minds. They're terrified. They're just boys and they've lost their leader who they've followed for the last three years so closely, the one they believe in, the one that they're willing to follow all the way. But he's just gone. And now they're scared stiff that we'll be next. So they're in disarray. They're frightened. At one point, they're found just hiding in an attic. That's what I'd be doing if I was 18 years old and they'd just taken my leader. I'm going to hide because they think that he's going to come after me now. I don't fancy that. I'm off. They are scared out of their minds in every way. But then, within days of that moment, a dramatic change takes place. These men, these boys, leave the attic and begin to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. They begin to boldly proclaim it as a team of 11 men, telling everybody they possibly can about Jesus and the fact that he has died for them and indeed risen again. The very streets that the disciples are so scared of going on just a few days before, they are now preaching Jesus on. The very streets where Jesus was paraded as a traitor. The very streets that led to the Savior's death. The very streets that just days earlier, the disciples were frightened to show their face in, are the very streets that they stand on in Jerusalem, claiming that Jesus Christ has risen. That he not only died, but as God, he he rose again. And I'm going to tell you all about it. What would bring about that change? These men went on to plant churches and tell people everywhere they could about Jesus. And all of these men, apart from one, several decades later, would die for the faith. Some of them were beheaded. Some of them were crucified. One was crucified upside down because he didn't count it worthy to be killed just like Jesus was. Others would be driven onto stakes covered in tar, and then set alight. Others would be fed to lions, and people would watch on for joy as these individuals would be ripped apart. Why would you do that? If you just thought, he's gone. We followed him for three years, but guys, this didn't work out, so I'm off. That's what I'd be doing. That's what you'd be doing. Unless he really did come back. And he appears to them, and they are so utterly amazed that Jesus lives. Everything he said throughout the Old Testament, and then when he told us just a few years ago that he would die, and then three days later rise again, and we saw him die, but now he lives. I will give my whole life to this. Because Jesus, if you're God, then, oh, then you are going to go ahead of me and create many, many rooms in your mansion for me. I will give my life for you. A lot of, I don't fancy the dying bit. Because that might hurt. I don't fancy that bit. But death itself, I'm in. Because that means I can come and be with you. And I believe who you said you are. It's the only way you could have risen again. So Lord, I'm in. And they start preaching the gospel. 
sharing the gospel because they believe it's true. A group of teenagers, lives turned around by encountering the risen Christ. Number six, finally. The sixth piece of evidence is the profound weakness of the various conspiracy theories. And the conspiracy theories are at best pants. They are so weak, it is unbelievable. And yet people across the globe who do not believe in Jesus have to believe in one of these. Because you've got to. Otherwise, you've got to stand with me and say, I believe Jesus rose again. In which case, I'm going to say to you, that makes him God. This is a big deal. Okay, I don't believe he's God. Okay. Which conspiracy theory then do you believe? Because they're so weak. And there's a number of them. And I've heard many over years. I've had the joy of doing Christianity Explored for many years and encountered many conspiracy theories. And they're just weak. So one idea that I heard a number of years ago is that Jesus did not actually die. That somehow, miraculously, on the cross, he did go into a coma, but he didn't actually die. And it sounds like okay on the face of it. I could see that. I could imagine now that could happen, that I could go along with that. But there's a few problems with that, which makes it very weak. First of all, he was killed by an executioner, a Roman executioner, a professional executioner. And the Romans, being the nice, kind people that they were, worked on the premise that if you pull down somebody from a cross and he's not quite dead, they were going to kill you. So you made sure this guy was dead. Okay, so, they, so by the time they get the, Jesus down from the cross, they're going to break his legs to make sure he's definitely dead. But they look at him and they know he's dead. So they take a spear and they thrust it into his side. And they actually rupture his heart sack, which is why the water, the water and the blood comes out and flows from his side. They know he's dead. He's definitely dead. Let's pull him down. He was killed by a professional executioner. But imagine for a moment that he managed to get through that, that he managed to get through the beatings, he managed to get through the, the flogging. Most people would die of the flogging alone, but imagine he got through that. He, he got through then the death on the cross. He got through the fact that they put a spear into his heart, which made the, the blood... He, somehow he survived all this. They then put him in a, in, in a tomb. Well, they then roll a 3,000-pound stone over the tomb, and, and due to tradition, they, they would basically embalm his body in about 100 pounds of different things. So, so he would have suffocated as well. So, so if all this had happened and that Jesus did then actually eventually appear to the disciples, they wouldn't have said, oh, behold my Lord, my God. They would have said, you need a doctor. Those would have been their first words because it would have been like, you are clearly sick. But he wasn't. He had scars on his hands, scars on his feet, but he was completely different. He, he, was, he was healed. The evidence for Jesus' death is overwhelming, which makes the idea that he didn't actually die and somehow hung on there just so weak that for somebody to believe that, I would have to honestly look you in your eye and say, then you've got more faith in that than me. And you think I believe something unreasonable? That just doesn't make sense at all. Another idea is that the disciples returned to the wrong grave after burying Jesus. Oopsies. They went back to the wrong one. So they buried him, but they were all distressed, they were upset, and they go back the next day, and they go into this one, and, oh my gosh, he's gone, he's risen! I can see how that could happen, and how people could say, oh, that's probably true, that might have happened. But again, it doesn't make sense. Because the Gospel of Mark, he takes the time to help us see that the same disciples that saw Jesus die, that then saw him, Jesus, get buried, were the same disciples that went back to the tomb. And this doesn't, isn't just any tomb. 
as was prophesied in the Old Testament and then came true, according to Mark, is that he was buried in the tomb of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. Everybody knew who he was. So everybody knew where this tomb was. So if the disciples had accidentally gone back to the wrong tomb, they would have said, oh, really? We'll check out with Joseph. At which point the disciples would have gone, oh, we didn't go to that one. We went to a different one. It just wouldn't have worked out like that. Joseph himself would have said, well, I'm going to come and check out my tomb. Oh, that was the, we didn't check back to that one. We checked after the wrong one. And do you not think that all this proclamation in the early days was all coming on to, in Jerusalem? It would be like me saying that, look, Jesus has been buried in Hornsby. Um, I'm telling all these thousands of people, and, and, he, and he rose again. I know what you're like. The first thing you'll be doing is checking it out. Well, that's exactly what people do. But in Jerusalem, they did. They did check it out. They went back to the tomb, and they're like, he has gone. So the idea that the disciples just got it wrong, oopsied, and went back to the wrong grave, is also really weak. The other idea is that the disciples stole the body. That maybe they stole it to carry on Christianity. Well, again, I think it's a weak argument because when Jesus got arrested, the disciples, as a group of young men, were scared out of their minds and hiding in an attic. That does not suggest to me men that would be having the strength to come and beat up the guard who's guarding the tomb and, and, and pull away a 3,000-pound rock and then rush this dead body back to the, to, the, to the room that they're already scared of anyway and then actually go and start giving their lives for him. They're in disarray thinking that potentially all that they'd believed was just wrong. They were mistaken. So the idea that they would steal the body and then start to live a lie just doesn't make sense. It's too weak. I can imagine like one person doing that, crazy. But 12? All believing, no, I'm giving my life to this because we saw him rise again. It's the only thing that would motivate me. The last conspiracy is that the authorities stole the body, and I think this is the weakest of them all. Post-resurrection, the disciples started preaching, and they started to cause a massive stir of faith. Loads of people are becoming Christians. The very thing that they wanted Jesus dead for. They wanted to squash this religion. So the disciples rock up, they start preaching Jesus. He has risen. He's come back from the dead. We've seen him. What would you do if you were the authorities and you'd stole the body? Tell you what I'm doing. I'm pulling the body out. And I'm going to say, gutted, here he is. Sorry, everybody back to their rooms. That's what anybody with any sense would be doing. They'd be saying, no, actually, we stole him and we brought him back. So, unfortunate. It's what the English did for years. When they killed the King of Wales, killed, killed the Prince of Wales many years ago, as a warning to everybody else that he was indeed dead, they chopped off his head and they took it to the Tower of London and they put it on a spike. We were a friendly sort back then. <laughs> but the whole premise was, we've got your leader. And because we've got your leader, you've had it, so shut up. The Roman authorities were brutal. They would have been the first to bring him out and say, here he is, so you can shut up. But they never did. Why did they not? Because they didn't have it. They didn't have the body. They didn't have the body because Jesus had indeed risen again. Now, folks, I think that then brings us right back to where we started. Just because the resurrection is supernatural does not mean that it's not reasonable. The various conspiracy theories are so weak and yet the evidence for resurrection is so strong. The Bible records the resurrection as history. 
The Bible says that the resurrection would happen, prophesying it and predicting it for hundreds of years prior to the moment. The sheer number of witnesses being brought in one by one by one, numbered over 500. There was a number of skeptics that at the same time started to give their lives to Jesus in a way they never did prior to the resurrection. And then the disciples, this group of young men, started to boldly preach Christ and him crucified, claiming throughout that he has risen. And hundreds of people then proceeded to give their lives to Jesus Christ, even to the place of death, because they would not give in or renounce the fact that Jesus has risen. Folks, if you're here today then and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, I simply want to close them with asking you a question. Having examined the evidence, what then is your verdict? Having examined the evidence of the resurrection, what do you think? Maybe you think, well, Dave, I'm just not into it all. Okay, then I'll say you're ignoring me. Or maybe you think, well, no, I, I, I am into it, but I don't think that's happened. Or I just don't know, I'm not sure. Okay, well, that happened in Jesus' day as well. And, and what that meant was, the answer was, no, I don't believe it. Because Jesus would just look people in their eyes and say, listen, if you believe me, then follow me. If you said, oh, I'm not sure, well, that just meant no. And if you're not sure, I want to encourage you, then find out. Because if this is true, then everything rests on this. Because if this is true, then Jesus was God, and meaning that everything he said was as God, which changes everything. So find out. But maybe you do actually believe that this is true. Maybe you look at the evidence and you think, no, the only reasonable response to that is that Jesus was indeed God. Well, folks, I agree with you. He was. And the truth is, when you believe that, when you believe that Jesus was God, you're halfway there. You're near. But you're still not in. It says in the Bible that even the demons believed. You could queue up a load of demons and say, was Jesus God? And they'd say, yes. Are they Christians? No. Is heaven their home? No. Because the Bible makes it clear that belief alone, just in an event, is not enough. It is putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It is saying, I believe this with all my heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. Well, okay, I believe. Fine. Well, do you believe he died for you? Not really, no. Have you made him your king? Not really. Well, then you don't really believe. You just believe it mentally. But that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is getting down on our knees and saying, you know what? I believe you're God. And I believe you died in my place. And I want to make you the king of my life. I want to follow you as my king. And the Bible makes it clear that when we do that, then you're saved. You're a Christian. People aren't Christians just because they go to church. People aren't Christians just because they get a life group. People aren't Christians just because they sing louder than everybody else. I'm not a burger just because I go to McDonald's. It doesn't work like that. People are Christians when they put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That alone. That is the only way to walk as a Christian. But Dave, I do good to people. Oh, that's really nice. Great. But it's only through faith in Jesus Christ that you can become a Christian. Faith is your Lord. 
as the king of your life and as your substitute that he died in your place and then rose again for you. Folks, I want to encourage you, if that is you, then come and see me before the end of the day because I'd love to pray with you or the person who brought you. If you want to respond to Jesus, believing that I believe he existed and he died in my place and I want to make him my Lord and Savior, I'd love to help you do that today. And we'll pray with you. And you will leave this room today being a Christian. If you are already a Christian, though, having examined the evidence, folks, I just want to encourage you. I so hope then that this helps to cultivate and strengthen the faith that is in your heart. Because if this is true, if Jesus really rose from the dead, something that we can believe in, because it is reasonable when we examine the evidence, if this is true, then everything Jesus said is true. He was God. And because he was God, when he then says, all those who put their faith in me as Lord and Savior will be saved, if you've done that, then it's true. Because he's God. When he says, you're forgiven if you put your faith in me, it's true. When he says, through faith in me, you will be adopted, it's true. When he says, when you die, I will come for you and I will take you home, it is true. And it's truth that we can stand on each and every day of our lives. If the resurrection is true, then all this is true. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And one day he will return and take us home. So church, let's stand on it with fresh conviction. Not just as a group of people that are fingers crossed, hopefully it'll work out. But as people who have examined the evidence and say, on the fact of that, I'm in. Jesus, you paid it all. And Jesus, you can have it all. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this story of the resurrection and the evidence is indeed so compelling. Because Lord, we don't have to check our brains out at the entrance just to be able to understand this stuff. In fact, quite the other. We have to check our brains in. So Lord, I thank you that the gift of salvation comes not only through our minds, but our hearts. Lord, you don't expect us to have some blind faith in nothing. But in your word, you present us facts that we can stand on and say, this is true. 500 people, all claiming they've seen you. Oh Lord, as we then put our faith in you as Lord and Savior, all 500 plus look on and say, it's true. He did rise again. And so, Lord, for each and every one of us then, would we be freshly aware of all you've done for us, freshly amazed and freshly affected that this is indeed true? And would we return to you then and give you all praise? In Jesus' name, amen. Folks, let's finish by standing together and let's working on the premise that this is true. Let's close them by saying thank you. Because we were orphans. But now we're children of God. Let's sing.